You said you wanted to know how to get Capone. Do you really want to get him? You see what I'm saying? What are you prepared to do? Everything within the law. And then what are you prepared to do? If you open the ball on these people, Mr. Nash, you must be prepared to go all the way. Because they won't give up the fight until one of you is dead. I want to get Capone. I don't know how to get him. Want to get Capone? Here's how you get him. He pulls a knife, you pull a gun. He sends one of yours to the hospital, you send one of his to the morgue. That's the Chicago way. That's how you get Capone. Hey, welcome back to Stuff We've Seen. This is your host, James Kent. Um, I've also got Bill Muir with me. This is going to be the continuation, uh, part two, if you will, of the last episode of Stuff We've Seen. And we were just getting ready to discuss the films of Mike Lee. Uh, But before we do that, felt that it was important to maybe touch on some people in the film business that we recently lost. Uh, Most of these uh, passed away in July or late July, and we just didn't get a chance to touch on it. Uh, So I'm going to mention a few of them. Bill will chime in as well. Uh, the first we're going to mention is a character actor named John Saxon. Uh, I don't know if a lot of kids today would know who he was, but uh, he was 83 years old. He passed away on July 25th. And this guy had 197 film and television credits, uh, very heavily emphasized on the TV. So he, he was a face that whether you knew what he was in, you've seen him tons, especially if you were a kid growing up in the 70s and 80s, like myself and Bill Muir. Yeah, you're laughing. You got a, you got something you want to say there quickly about John Saxon? I mean, you know, John Saxon will always be. I mean, one of the things that uh, with my youngest son, we watch uh, Enter the Dragon uh, a lot, like more than that a person should. <laughs> He's just, he's such an odd character in it. But, um, you know, he's, you're absolutely right. He's one of these people who showed up all the time. You'd see him in TV episodes. Um, he's in Joe Kid with Clint Eastwood. Yes. With a very funky mustache. Yeah, I mean, so sometimes he, well, he, he played good guys and bad guys, right? So Enter the Dragon. Right. Hey, I guess he's a good guy, but he's a little nefarious. Um, he plays Roper, right? That's the guy in Enter I, the I Dragon. think that's the guy's name. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I love the the first time you see him out on the golf course with, you know, he has his secretary with a satellite phone you know, <laughs> out on the golf course, yes. as you do. Uh, you know, he's only wearing that, like, that terry cloth outfit they gave you. I'm sure that if the internet today is so alive, you could probably get a replica of the terry cloth outfit from End of the Dragon. Oh, my God. That's, you just gave me a great idea. <laughs> he, played, he always played like a cop, too. Like, usually had a daughter, and he was a cop. So he did that in, uh, I think, Black Christmas and also in the Nightmare on Elm Street and and Nightmare on Elm Street 3, Dream Warriors. Uh, he was, That's right. Uh, That's I forget her name. The, the character, was it Nancy or whatever? It's the dad. I think that's, yeah. So, you know, if you've seen, if you love horror, you've probably seen him there. Uh, he was also in Blood Beach, probably played a cop. And then in one of my wife's favorite Mystery Science Theater 3000 episodes, he was in this movie called Mitchell, which I have never seen. And I haven't. I've never seen it either. But my wife is like obsessed with, she said it's the funniest of the Mystery Science Theater 3000s. Well, he was also a regular on Fantasy Island. He was like a character six times on that show. That's right. Always, That's where yeah. you'd see him all the time. Yeah. And so, you know, you get a familiarity. And he had a he had a face, a really great character face that even though I couldn't tell you all the movies he was in, I always recognized his face whenever he popped into a film. It was just that recognizable. Usually it was it was a heavy storyline on Fantasy Island when he was in. Oh yeah. Except for where he got to play Cyrano de Bergerac. <laughs> on Fantasy Island. Hey, so How did I miss this? there was a movie, and maybe you've seen it. I, I have to bring this up because I, I wouldn't say I'm obsessed with it. I hated it, actually. But he was in a TV movie from April of 1974 that Gene Roddenberry uh, wrote. 
and it was a sci-fi film that would show up on Saturday afternoons, and my dad loved it because he loved sci-fi, and I would be forced to have to watch it if there was nothing else going on. It was called Planet Earth. He played this character, Dylan Hunt, who, I don't know, he gets beamed- I definitely have never seen it. Well, he gets beamed onto sort of this alternate reality uh, of Earth. He was like a, an astronaut, right? It's sort of like a takeoff on Planet of the Apes, but mm-hmm. he lands on a planet that is run by uh, sort of like women who control the world, and he's used for breeding purposes, and they call all the breeders dinks. <laughs> yeah, and <laughs> it's awesome. Uh, and I was always obsessed because I didn't know what the name was, you know, because before the, the days of IMDb, I just knew there was this crazy movie. Hey, there was this movie. Where John Saxon played this guy that they, they, they called a dink. <laughs> so anyways. And and so was he the only man on the planet? No, no, no. There was other dinks. Um, you know, <laughs> and it was about trying to like, you know, break away from the repressive regime of evil women. Uh, but anyways, that's right. all I have to say on John Saxon. Valerie Solanus is, uh, the yeah. you know, in charge of the planet. <laughs> so, you know, there's there's more, there's some bigger names that have also passed away. Uh, just recently, we lost the director, Alan Parker, uh, 76 on July 31st, and he had some big titles to his credit. Bugsy yeah. Malone was his first one. Midnight yep. Express is his follow-up, which is weird, and that was a big hit. Uh, then yes. he did Fame, uh, which really made a big impact on me as a kid. Explain that a little, because I got to tell you the truth, Fame <laughs> fell a little flat with me in some ways, because I don't know if it was because I didn't see it in the theater. I eventually saw it later on video. And by that point, there had been a TV series yes. and it always and which which opened up and I got to see like the the opening credits to that a thousand times. And it, it kind of watered down the movie for me. I mean, I thought it it had some good moments to it. Tell you my quickly with my obsession with you. I feel like this is going to turn into an entire episode. We're never going to get to Mike Lee. That's going to be the tease. We, we'll get there. We'll get there. We'll get there. Go ahead. There's that show on Saturday Night Live where they do What's Up with That, and uh, Lindsey Buckingham's always sitting there, and he never gets to actually say anything. It's going to be the same thing. Uh, <laughs> we'll get to you, Mike Lee, next week. <laughs> At the end of the couch. So fame. Well, it came out in 1980, and I was only 10, and I couldn't see it. But for some reason, I, I must have seen the trailers for other movies. You know, when I'm seeing other films, I was like, I want to see this movie. Didn't get to see it, of course, because I was too young. And then it started to come on cable, and I didn't have cable right. then, but there were kids that had cable that I went to school with because the town I lived in, for some reason- And you'd invite yourself over. Well, no, no, no. But it was <laughs> a strange reason is that the town that I lived in was one of the earliest adopters of cable TV. They were one of the very first people in the early 70s to get it. Was it was it because they were kind of on the, the edge of like the Boston broadcast range? Is that it? Well, it was because the, the cable company was actually located in the town. And right. so, so it was juiced in. And so yeah, that was and it. So I had lived in a n- neighboring town when I was a kid, Lexington, and they didn't have access to cable. It was weird. Remember those days where like certain towns didn't have they access to and cable? Certain didn't exactly for a very long time. Like New York City didn't have cable. Right. So uh, I, w- I fell into that category. And when I got to this town, you know, my parents were still like, I don't need to, we don't need to pay money for television, right? <laughs> but mom, dad, MTV. <laughs> so fame, I'd hear kids talking about, you know, and it was usually the boys talking about some kind of scene where guys were peeking in at the girls at the bathroom or something. And so I'm instantly was like, I got to see that. <laughs> A couple years later, I don't know, it was, maybe it was 82, my dad took me to the Harvard Square Cinema. It used to be just a single theater, and they, it was a repertory house, and it would just show revivals of stuff. A lot of great right. pairings. And they had a double feature of Milos Forman's hair. Okay. And uh, fame. And fame. So new musicals. Yeah. Uh, and that, that One did well, one didn't. But I really right. wanted to see fame. And I had no interest in hair. My dad, I think, only wanted to go because he had seen the play um, or the music. I thought hair wasn't half bad, tell you the truth. Well, no, no. So, yeah. So, it was one of those things where I'm like, well, I have to sit through one to get to the other. We go and see this film. I I loved hair. Mm -hmm. I was just blown away by it. I didn't know anything about the story. I didn't know anything about the songs except for the one, like, you know, let the sunshine in there. Sunshine in. I was like, whoa, that song was a big hit. Uh, You know, so (laughs) I really loved it. Yeah, that and Jan and Dean. (laughs) But it was like a real uh, bonus. And 
it just, you know, shows you that you just don't get ready to prejudge. You know, as a kid, you might like something that you really weren't sure of. So I'd already seen this hair and I was very excited. And now it's like, now the second movie I get to see is this fame. And, you know, I guess it was just something about this big screen, seeing this film, and also just seeing kids. I didn't I didn't really even understand that they were, like, in high school. I didn't know it was college. I really just didn't quite grasp because the kids, the actors weren't kids, right? They were a little bit older. And whenever you see these uh, people in their 20s playing, you know, teenagers, it kind of skews your view of how old people are when you're only, like, 12, right? Mm-hmm. But the things they were going through – I'm just a few years away from getting ready to go through some of those same situations. So I was just fascinated. And there was right. some weird stuff that didn't quite make sense to me. Um, you know, stuff that as I got older and saw the film other times, it kind of, the blanks were filled in. But right. there's a moment, and this is where I think Alan Parker did just really, really great. Okay, good. Yeah. What, so what is, what's the so moment? So there's this moment where the first day is, they go through the auditions and they get in. Right. And then the first day of school, you're kind of focusing on one really like inward, awkward, shy uh, girl whose mom was sort of one of those stage mothers who believed Mm -hmm. that the daughter had more talent than she really did. And now she probably didn't even want to go to the school, but now she's plucked in and she's feeling not like this is her thing at all. And she's getting lunch. And it's this lunchroom thing. And Alan Parker figures out a way, hey, if this is sort of going to be kind of a musical, but it's going to be different, how do I turn this moment into a musical and kind of show what all these kids are about? And, you know, you get these kids are sort of just practicing at lunch in between Mm -hmm. their classes. And you hear almost sort of this tune up, warm up, and somebody starts like just playing uh, with their drumsticks on a table. And then the one kid that we follow, Bruno, who's like the big hot shot with the keyboard, he starts like, right. sees a piano, but suddenly there's an energy that becomes happening. I get really, really caught up and I'm very excited watching this moment unfold. But as it turns into this huge, big sort of party scene, the one girl like really kind of creeps away and she just doesn't want to be part of it. And I kind of recognize right. that too, where I was a very shy kid. Um, but from that moment on, I was really in for the ride. I, I hear you. I think that's really, I think that's actually well put. But my biggest problem with the movie, it was still to this day, as many times as I've seen the film, is it ends really kind of, as you as you said just in the last episode, very flaccidly. I'm trying to remember. They graduate and then that's kind of right. it and there's a graduation. And I was enjoying the movie so much that when it was over and that was going to be it, I was crushed. And that's a sign of a great movie that I was having such a good time. I didn't want it to end. Right. I really feel like a lot of his work is kind of uneven, or at least sort of the overall thing. And I really do appreciate a lot of things. And the movie I think you're coming to now, if I'm, I'm right, I think is one of his strongest movies. Is very good. Shoot the Moon? Oh, yeah. That's really good, actually. I've, that's that's got, the one like, I haven't really seen. That's actually got some very strong. I mean, I'm kind of. I mean, now, now what happens, right? When when someone like this passes away, uh, the streaming services tend to figure out. Oh, well, we should get some of his films on there. So I'm really hoping Shoot the Moon shows up somewhere soon because I do want to see it. And I've actually Shoot the Moon's very good. Finney's performance is is really you know very good, very strong. Uh, a couple of places himself and Diane Keaton. It also has. Um, this actress, I think it's, I forget what her name yeah, is. Yeah, she, she passed away. Dana. That's right. And she always played the daughter. Like she's the daughter in uh, European Vacation. Yeah, yeah. She she had diabetes and she passed away. That's right. Dana me. Hill, yep. is that her name? Yep, or? Yep. You know, Shoot the Moon I haven't seen. Birdie, I've started actually. It was on Amazon Prime. I'm watching. It. It's not engaging me very much. And it's probably why I've never seen it until this 
I thought Nicolas Cage is great in Birdie. He's really good. Good performance. He very famously pulled out a couple of his teeth. That sounds like, well, he's had bad teeth to begin with, so he's probably looking for dentures. Yeah, no. <laughs> then, of course, a film that uh, Teal and I have touched upon, and I really, especially then, I love, because I hadn't seen a film like it at the time, was Angel Heart. Yeah. Um, so I love that. Then, you know, Mississippi Burning, we can we, we have a new lens on it now, but at the time when I saw it, I loved it. Right. I, I loved it, too. I think in some ways is best, some ways is worst. I mean, Gene Hackman is still, you know, he's awesome. He's fantastic. Um, he got into Alan Park and got into a very big fight with Spike Lee at the time as well. Well, and, you know, Spike Lee was was one of the first to call out and say this is uh, this is the white man's version of what's the story should be, you know. Mm-hmm. And then then he then he slips. This is where, you know, he was very uneven. I didn't see this film again, but partly because nobody was really seeing it was Come See the Paradise. Don't see the paradise. Oh, see, okay. Um, <laughs> but then, of course, he makes one of my all-time favorite movies. I've seen it at least 20 times. Love it, love it, love it. The Commitments. Personal favorite of his, yeah. Could do no wrong there. Just if he had only made The Commitments and everything else was crap, I would still love this guy for the commitments. Uh, then he made a movie that I, I personally loved at the time. I don't think it's a film that's yet been discovered. Uh, it needs to be rediscovered is The Road to Wellville. It has some really good moments in it and good performances. Uh, yeah. You don't you just never hear from it. But uh, I was not a big fan of Evita. No, me neither. I think it's I think it's awful. I didn't see the last two films he made, Angela's Ashes or The Life of David Gale. Um, and I guess that, that David Gale finished his career off because that was 2003. And he basically was, I think, 59, 60. He retired. He didn't make another movie. That's right. That's it. He, and he's actually famous. A few years ago, he did an interview. Uh, this is Alan Parker again, where people said, you know, why did, why aren't you making any films? He's like, I retired. He's like, you know, more directors should retire. He's like, once you're like 60, <laughs> like it's diminishing returns. People don't, you know, tend to make their film, good films anymore. So I had a friend who uh, worked on Angela's Ashes and is second to last movie. And he said that uh, he was honored by the British Film Institute while they were making it. And he just said one lunch hour, he just sat and watched over and over again the retrospective that they had done of him. So very much, I guess, kind of like uh, the sense of the end of his career. Everybody has different things they want in life. I think we think that all filmmaker people should just keep making films till they drop. And he's like, well, I've made all the movies I want to make and uh, I can enjoy retirement. And so he actually enjoyed like the last 17 years of his life doing other things, I guess. Um, now, the other, this is another biggie. So, again, we're really only going to hit a highlight reel because it's just crazy because you could talk about this guy for an entire episode. But the great composer Ennio Morricone died uh, July 6th at the age of 91. Composer with various uh, 500 plus credits. And that's just crazy. And absolute genius. He was only nominated a few times, which is crazy for all his scores and not even his most famous ones. Uh, you know, he was nominated for a movie, Milena. I haven't seen that. And then Bugsy, which I actually didn't think, I thought was a little bit of a derivative score for him. Right. But then the great Untouchables, The Mission, Days of Heaven. Absolutely. The Mission is one of his, his greatest scores, I have to say. Yeah, I love that. And then Days of Heaven, the funny thing is, I think the part that everybody loves about that movie, as far as the music is concerned, isn't the part that he actually composed. And that's the intro music, and they use it a few times. It's actually a very famous score. Um, his music throughout the film is great, but the opening of that movie is very haunting, but it's actually a classical piece. It's not him. I, a couple of the other things that he did that, I mean, obviously, I think Once Upon a Time in the West, I saw it uh, in a double feature with Pat Garrett and Billy, Ki Billy the Kid. The very next day, I went to Tower Records down on 4th Street and bought the soundtrack. I mean, I was just so blown away by it. Battle of Algiers, also another great score that he did. Oh, that's great. That is fantastic. Also, it just recently went off the criteria and we were talking about uh, uh, an investigation of uh, a citizen above suspicion. It didn't go off of criteria. I didn't see it. I, it's all, yeah, I'm watching it now. Oh, you told okay. me to watch it, so I'm watching it. I'm about a half an hour into the film, and it's an interesting movie. But the score, you said, oh, it's a fantastic score. So that kind of pushed me to see it. And I'm like, oh, I totally know this score. You've heard it played in other pieces. Well, no, I have this awesome two-record vinyl set of his best scores, and I'll listen to it all the time. And some of the score titles are in Italian, of course, 
that's also in Italian, the investigation of a citizen above suspicion. And so right. I didn't recognize that as that was from that film. So and whenever I hear it and then I hear it in the movie and I'm like, oh, I totally know that. Um, and of course, one of his most famous, what the good, the bad and the ugly. Right. Yeah. Um, but my favorite track is the ecstasy of gold from yes that. um and that's yes. so great and then another thing what well, before i even knew who Ennio morricone was my dad used to watch his favorite sort of comedy western was my name is nobody right and the music is what really drew me to that film and of course it's morricone do you, do you know i have a question for you the thing is the movie the thing he has a soundtrack credit on it yes. but john carpenter usually does his own stuff yes as well. So do you have an understanding of to what what's Carpenter and what's Morricone? I think that basically Morricone had to do what Carpenter want because he created a score that Carpenter rejected. Now, somebody who knows Carpenter a little bit more than I could say, oh, you know, Morricone got the credit, but it's just Carpenter because you hear that boom, boom. But no, that's, that's, that's Morricone's score, supposedly. However, his rejected score, he, you know, this guy, he had 500 credits and sometimes <laughs> some of the stuff sounded a little the same. He resurrected it for his only Oscar, The Hateful Eight. Oh, okay. It's a little bit revised, but The Hateful Eight score is amazing. Um, and I'm glad he won because there's a guy who really deserved. He did win, you know, one of those Lifetime Achievement Awards from the Oscars, but right. he really deserved. I mean, he also did other things. I didn't see the movie because it's supposed to be so terrible. However, I hear his score is amazing for Exorcist 2, The Heretic. <laughs> that, I'm just saying. I've seen the movie. Another thing, and this is, I, I mentioned this, I feel like I did with Teal. Uh, Once Upon a Time in America, the much maligned at the time, but it's a brilliant movie. One thing that was universally appreciated with his score there, and it really was fantastic, and it probably should have been the winner that year for best score. However, it wasn't nominated because the producers forgot to submit him in time. So Once Upon a Time in America didn't get a score nomination, and it really it's a beautiful was score. one of his best. And then, of course, very famous, and I don't think the movie is as successful without his score, is Cinema Paradiso. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, the end montage. Oh my God, yeah. yeah, the one that, you know, unless you're unless you're heartless like Teal, who won't cry in that <laughs> film. Um, and I'm sorry, he said it, that he didn't like that movie, so I can make fun of him for it. Um, though I only saw the movie once. I saw it in the theater, and yeah. Me I, too. I could, saw it in the theater, and that was it. The tears were definitely streaming. He also did The Conformist. That's right. And then, like, I mean, so basically, when they call movies spaghetti westerns, these uh, western knockoffs that were done in Italy, I mean, if you don't have Morricone score on all of them, it, they're not quite the same. You know what I mean? He does. He does um, a couple of Sergio Corbucci's films, The, Duck, the Great sucker. Silence. <laughs> you suck. Yeah, they did that score too. <laughs> That's right. I mean, I looked at the the core. I mean, this is laundry list, and everything is some Italian name that sounds westerny, and it's all in the '60s. And he did them all. He also did the score for um, Gilo Pontecorvo's follow up to Battle of Algiers, Burn or Kemada, which is actually a very good score as well. Oh, I have not seen that. I mean, I have because yeah, uh, yeah. that guy only made a couple movies. That's right. That's right. But it's it's a it's a, a very good score uh, to that. I, what I always love is the story, uh, the idea that how Leone um, used Morricone's music that he actually had it recorded beforehand and he would play it on the set. So James Woods was talking about when they were making uh, Once Upon a Time in America and the idea he said, you know, it was the most amazing experience that he ever had that, you know, that feeling he said it just really helped the performances hearing the the score and you're actually able to kind of get a sense of what the mood right. in the scene is supposed to be. It, this guy, I mean, so prolific. The guy just had ideas in his head that never stopped. And he also had like, you know, watching Investigation of a Citizen Above Suspicion, he does this cool thing where he uses sounds and instruments that you don't hear in any score today. His boings are boings. amazing. <laughs> That's why my wife wasn't watching the movie when she was in the room. She's like, oh, man, the, the music and the sounds in this movie are great. It was like all this boing. Yeah, it's great. And and the, the kind of the piano that's out of tune. Oh, it's so awesome. He's kind of playing and stuff. Yeah, it's... um. Uh, I, I mean, honestly, a genius. He's an idea man. Um, okay. And then, uh, you know, it's, it's, this is not a in-depth uh, 
you know, Idra, we do want to get to Mike Lee. So uh, one more person, no, actually, well, okay, just because you mentioned it uh, on the first half of this episode, which has already been out there, uh, the guy who actually played Clint Eastwood's partner in Dirty Harry, uh, he just passed away yesterday. <laughs> Rini Santoni. Yeah. Uh, some uh, people might know him as he was Poppy in the Seinfeld episode of Famous, but I always knew him from that. You know, I always knew him from uh, Dirty Harry. I know from Dirty Harry from Bad Boys. He's the uh, the prison counselor, you know, and he's always in the trailer for Bad Boys with Sean Penn. You can grow old in here, Jack. Yeah, I do remember. Yes, <laughs> and uh, also he was in Manimal. Okay, enough. <laughs> That's enough. Okay, we get it. He's an actor, and he's no longer with us. All right, and then the last person I'm going to mention, right, is uh, Wilford Brimley. Everyone thought he was dead for years, but he wasn't. Uh, well, because he seems so old, and that's what is that kicked off this fantastic thing that someone started doing, which was the the Brimley cocoon line. You know what this is, right, Bill? Do you not know what uh, are you talking? Is it a cat couldn't scratch it? No, no, no. Okay, so the with the oh. so Wilford Brimley was the kindly old grandpa in Cocoon, right? Right. Who, you know, befriends the, the the aliens next door and gets mm-hmm. them all to swim with the pods. And then he was also in the thing we mentioned that, and he's great in that, and he's in the natural. He, he plays the coach in the natural. I love that. And uh, he was also in the firm and a few other movies. Uh, he was in a TV show, China Syndrome. He was in the China Syndrome. That was one of his first films. So he like got into acting late in life. So the whole thing about the Brimley Cocoon line is that Wilfred Brimley, while he looked like he was in his 70s in Cocoon, he was actually only 50 years old. (laughs) And so the Brimley Cocoon line is the age you reach that Wilfred Brimley was the day that Cocoon debuted in theaters. And it's like 50 years plus like six months or something. So- uh, what this person does on Twitter is anytime a celebrity crosses the Brimley cocoon mm-hmm. line, they mention it. And it's always so shocking because people today don't quite look as old as they did back then. Um, no. And so Wilford Brimley, I guess the bonus is, is that years later, he looked the same age. So he got to a certain right. aging point and then he just looked the same. Uh, and then there's a knock. There's a knock on Wilford Brimley that I heard recently when someone did a tribute to him. Mm-hmm. What's the knock? Apparently, years ago, I don't know, in the 90s or something, he was against uh, banning cockfighting. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not kidding. He was against it. Uh, he wanted to keep the tradition alive for his kids, I guess. I don't know. Him and Warren Oates. Uh, yeah. So he was a big fan <laughs> of that Warren Oates film, Cockfighter. Um, so for some strange reason, you know, Brimley was no fan of the uh, the animals. <laughs> So, yeah. So, you know, again, that's, that's what, that's what I read, you know, in the, in the cancel culture, someone was writing this thing about Wilford Brimley and someone said, yeah, well, he, he didn't want the cockfighting band. So goodbye. Like, wow. He's been waiting for Brimley to die so that they could uh, kiss him off for his cockfighting stance. Um, what I, what I have to say, actually, I thought was good about him is the idea that he played someone who was so soft in cocoon kind of. Um, you know, this kind of lovable grandfather. I mean, a little crusty, but then also I thought he could have genuine menace in something like The Firm. Yes, exactly. Right. He always had that with that calm demeanor. Yeah, that can be unnerving. Okay. So one of my all-time favorite villainous performances it is so creepy. And it's the guy's first role. He's another actor who got into the game really late in life. And if you haven't seen this movie, people, you got to check it out. If only for this performance, because it is just so evil. Robert Prosky in Thief. Yeah, Michael Mann's thief. He yep. plays the seemingly kindly mafia boss. Um, Teddy bearish. At first. <laughs> that's his character. Thing. <laughs> and it's so realistic and sinister because he just lives in a regular house and he just seems like he's somebody's grandpa. And he is one evil mother effer. Yeah. When he gives that whole like monologue about how he's going to destroy James Conn's life. That's it. Where he's going to put his woman out on the streets and uh, it's so evil. And, you know, you've never seen this guy before. So it's that's even more sinister. So, but it's, uh, yeah, it's those performances by these kindly gentlemen who are definitely not 
And you know what? It's funny. That guy reminds me. He reminds me of the uh, the old Italian guy that lived uh, across the street from us down <laughs> when we lived with Sophia. That there was that kindly old couple mm-hmm. that would sit there in front of the. Are you talking about the Ravenite Social Club? <laughs> John Gotti's social club. Not the one that that wasn't directly across from us. Ours was a no, different no, but one. the one that was that was one block over. Yeah, yeah. there was the, the the club on the corner, and somebody got mugged, and then we had like a private security guard on the block. Yeah. Well, okay, so now we have to tell this story. So, were you living there at the time, or was it just Sophia and I yes. at the time when this? No, happened? I was living there. So there yes. was a mugging in our building, right next door to our apartment building. The girl, there was a, a few people that lived next door to us, and. This girl was mugged. Somebody, you know, junkie or whatever, got into the entrance and he robbed her. And that was a little scary, right? Because, you know, we had a, a, a female roommate, Sophia, and it was kind of worrisome that she could come home one night and in that hallway, which is kind of dark, that someone could jump out and, you know, mug her or stuff. So right. there was this thing <laughs> that happened where Sophia and I used to walk together sometimes back from uh, 721 Broadway or whatever. We're just going out and about. And this old couple, an old man and woman would sit out in these little lawn chairs in front of an Italian social club and used to wave to us all the time like, hi, honey. And I think they thought we were married or something, right? And one day, I don't know, it was after this mugging that Sophia went over to them with me and it was the first time I ever talked to them. And that's when you heard like kind of how gruff this kindly grandpa looking guy was. <laughs> and she was like, did you hear about it? Like, yeah, yeah, we did. We did. Yeah, we, we, we know who that person is. And then a f- like a week later or something, the guy called us over. It was great. And he's like, oh, we just wanted to kind of give you an update. That guy's not going to be bothering anybody anytime soon. <laughs> And we walk back in our mind like, oh, holy <laughs> shit. Whoa. Um, and then he said, go just... up the street. There's a cop who's got your wallet and he wants to wants a gratuity. Just to, just, to, just to remind you that I think it was Wednesday nights or Thursday nights that we were around the corner from John Gotti's social club, the Ravenite social we club. We were. And, um, just to talk about how different New York was back then. All the mob guys would come to the meeting and they would park on Mulberry Street on the sidewalk for a couple of blocks. It would be, you know, Cadillacs and Lincolns and Mercedes like up on the sidewalk and the cops would walk by like not ticketing them, almost just kind of like keeping an eye on them. <laughs> so it was a very different time. Yes, I do remember that the day we were we were. They're living together when John Gotti was actually found guilty and yes. it was in the spring of 92 and we went, you insisted we go right down there to Mulberry Street and mm-hmm. there was this woman, I remember, outside, hanging outside her window. It was just like out of a movie and she goes, this is so wrong. <laughs> this is an injustice. Yeah, I don't know exactly the words she said. And she's like, she's like, you go up the street, get your wallet from the cop. And then I check my back pocket. Right. I'm like, oh my god, my wallet's gone. Okay, so anyways, uh, we're going to segue for here for enough of the deaths. We are now going to uh, talk about our good friend and filmmaker Mike Lee. Uh, Mike Lee. Uh, famed British filmmaker. We've uh, started to talk to him about him just a little bit last time we talked. And a few episodes ago, I talked to Teal briefly, asked him if he'd seen some films. And now I am happy to announce, with the exception of Mr. Turner and Peter Liu, which I've actually started now. I've, I've got about a 35 minutes into it. I am kind of enjoying it, and I will be finishing it. I've seen every feature that Mike Lee has uh, directed, so uh, including this one that's it was released in some theaters in England, but it was a British TV show. But it was shot one six six, which is which one is that? Meantime. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, that's that's. So you've seen a bunch of them, and this, the best part is Criterion is offering up a huge chunk of his movies. So if you've only seen one or two or maybe none of his films, it's an opportunity to dive in. And it's a really weird thing when you go full on uh, 
completionist with a director because you get immersed into that director's world and you start to see, you know, some of the similar themes, storylines, actors, uh, plot devices, and what you like and what you don't like. And so I've really, I'd seen about half the movies that they had on Criterion Mm -hmm. and now I've seen the other half. So I've watched about five movies in the past month or so that I had never seen before of Mike Lee's. Right. And, um, you know, had seen a a number of his films, a couple that they didn't have on there. He did one in Northern Ireland called uh, Four Days in July that's uh, that's really it's like a short good. though, right? It's not a no, film. no, no, no. Oh, it's, it? it's a feature. Absolutely. Was that the one from the early seventies? I think it's like nineteen eighty or so. I mean, he made it and he shot it in Northern Ireland. I have yeah, not seen I, that. I, I, you really can't find it. I had an old VHS copy of it that I of course I you I, did. <laughs> I, I, I think I copied it. At, like they had it at Kim's Video when I, I okay. made a, a bootleg copy of it. <laughs> so, but uh, yeah, it I used to be a really huge Mike Lee fan back in in the nineties and. So it was really, and then I, I just, you know, I, I kind of stopped watching movies in general for a bit, but uh, I um, was really, I'd missed a whole bunch of them and I was really kind of happy to catch up with some of his later films. Really, I didn't get through all of them, the ones in Criterion, but I did watch um, Another Year. Okay. Which you had wanted to focus on. And, and well, that, that might, started me off on this new journey. And I was going to say, it might be a good transition because people, we've just been talking about our youth and looking back from middle age. And, uh, you know, that's a lot of what the movie seems to be about. I mean, you know, it's like seasons in a year, but it's a lot of reflection and hopes for your kids yep. uh, and then seeing your friends and how their lives turned out. Right. Also- What's interesting is it's got a lot of Mike Lee regulars and it's regulars that you've seen in his movies throughout the years. And because I didn't see some of those movies before going backwards and watching those, it was fascinating to see certain actors and actresses when they were very young. Right. You mean Leslie Manville? Well, okay, so Leslie Manville, she shows up in a couple of his movies. One, All or Nothing, which was only a few years before, but she plays a very different character. Right. Uh, very Secrets morose. and Lies. Is Leslie Manville in that? Yeah, she's the therapist who- um, Oh, she uh, is. The daughter, yes. Who she, or who she goes to, the, the social worker who has the file. And okay, so yes. She's in I see, I haven't seen that in a long time, but Manville also shows up as a very, like, upper class, really obnoxious Londoner in High Hopes. High Hopes. That's right. That stupid ad. Yeah. And uh, another actress that I've loved in Mike Lee movies that is one of the key focuses of another year, but you go back to High Hopes and see her when she's really young. Ruth Sheen. Ruth Sheen. And that's a trip. When you see somebody 30 years before. Right. And suddenly, you know, it's like different. And that also happened watching that movie Meantime, which is just, it's like a collection of actors. Right. That you know now that they're older. Right. But going back and seeing them much younger. It's it's a real, I mean, that's that's Mike Lee. I I saw an interview because I really was very taken with um, another year and I, I watched him speaking about it and he was talking about the fact you know because everyone obviously focuses on Leslie uh, Manville uh, her character Mary in it who is um, you know for people who don't know the movie should I do the you know if people who don't know the movie it's about a, a middle-aged English couple, middle class. They, you know, you can see they, uh, Tom and Jerry are their names. And, yes. Uh, and they even <laughs> joke about that, yeah. that, that, that people, you know, because you don't know when you're going to marry somebody that they happen to have the name of two cartoon characters. Right. right. So Tom and Jerry, and they, um, they have one son. And you can see, you know, she's a therapist. He's a geologist. They have, I think you can say they're kind of really nice decent liberal people who don't want to do harm. They actually try to, to help. And their son also is a, um, a lawyer who helps people who are being evicted from their homes. So they're, they're people who are kind of making their way. Because, I mean, one of the themes that I think comes up in a lot of Mike Lee's movies with we'll August is the fact that society really is becoming increasingly uncaring and indifferent to the fates of, of people. And so how do you, in you know, your own way, try to be a good, decent person in a world which seems to reward shitty behavior. <laughs> yes. Right? And so Tom and Jerry are that. And you can see they're they're 
good, they're open, they're generous, and they open their house a great deal to this character, Mary, who works in the office with Jerry. Jerry is a therapist. And you just kind of see Mary's life as this sort of disappointment, and she keeps making all of these kind of terrible choices. And even though it, really the focus of the film is Tom and Jerry, um, I saw a lot of people talking about how they felt that Mary really was the central character of the story. Well, it is that people are used to following a film where the characters that are introduced as the main characters stay the main characters. Right. In this film, the focus shifts. I think it's the power of this performance of Leslie Manville because her character is so real because unless <laughs> unless you're related to somebody directly like that character, you know someone like her. Yes. Right? Really kind, good-hearted, but just can't get her life on track. Yes. And yet the decisions she makes are decisions that she thinks will make her life go on track. Yes, it's always there's always something over the next horizon. If I just buy this car, everything is going to be great. Yeah, like she's very apologetic. Like she, there's this whole thing about her being a smoker, and she seems to be very embarrassed by that because she's meeting up with more more upper middle class friends, and it's looked down upon. So she's always scolding herself for it and kind of saying, "Oh, this is just I'm I'm trying to quit." And yeah, yeah, I don't really smoke. <laughs> yeah, uh, which clearly she does, but this is uh, this is one of her little traits, and she has formed a crush. On their son. Yes. And it's not appropriate. I mean, she is much older than the son. The son's like in his early 30s, but there's a dynamic going on. It's just not appropriate. Well, but in the in the dynamic, because it's, it's sort of four different episodes. And in the first episode, you get the sense that the parents, Tom and Jerry, are under the impression that maybe their son is gay. And mm -hmm. that's why he's never brought a woman home. Right. And that's kind of the where their thought process is. And they don't really notice that there may be anything inappropriate with the playful relationship that the son has with their friend with Mary. Mary. And then there's a moment where clearly like Mary has a crush on him and you can see that he's uneasy and you think, well, maybe it's because he doesn't want to hurt her feelings, but right. he is maybe he is gay. But then the big switch happens where he brings home the in another segment, a girlfriend. And that's what's interesting is it seems to be a surprise to the parents, but a delightful one because yes. now they see a future potentially, you know, kids, yes. grandkids and all this stuff. And that's the moment where in one of the greatest acting performances I've seen in a long time, and you get these in Mike Lee movies, Leslie Manville's whole reaction. Oh, oh. Is so gut wrenchingly painful. But what's so? But here's what's so interesting, and this is something you've probably read, where there are people that don't think that Tom and Jerry are really nice people. I mean, because there's the moment where she later says to him, says to Mary, where Jerry says to Mary, "You have to take responsibility for your own actions." Well, so this is what I like. There's a lot of in between the lines and moments you don't see type of things with Mike Lee. Mm -hmm. I feel that Tom and Jerry are really a, a, a real couple. And they're very polite yes. when they're in the moment with people, but they do have their own opinions. And when they get to but be just real. the two of them. Right. That's what's so real is they might joke a little bit about that. Doesn't mean they don't love their friends anymore, but they're still like, oh my God, can you believe this? Like, you know, if, if I wasn't able to be, you know, make like biting sarcastic comments about people, right. my head would explode. Right. But that's why I liked it because I felt it was very real. Me too. And, but what's so cool is that in an American movie- I'm so I'm so glad you're going there. Go for it. Go well, for it. In an yeah. American movie, when all of this unfolds with Leslie Manville, it would be more obvious and there would have to be a confrontation scene where Ruth Sheen figures it out and says, well, he has girlfriend. You're ruining it. Instead, the, the, the scene plays out that- you there's very subtle things that Ruth Sheen especially and to a lesser degree Jim Broadbent Jim Broadbent says they have suddenly figured out that the reason she's acting this way is that she's upset because it's growing and it all it's all unfolding in Ruth Sheen's head I know what's going on yep. and yet rather than making a scene about it she has a very direct and subtle way to say hey 
This is our future and you don't get to dictate it. Sure, you might yep. be upset because you like our son, but that's not appropriate. And he's got a girlfriend that makes sense. And yet she doesn't have to say any of that. So this is where the Mike Lee technique of rehearsal and figuring out character arcs. Brilliant. Yeah. And I don't feel that it's always successful, especially no. in some of his earlier films. But in this one, it's great to watch. You're absolutely right. And the thing is, in an American movie... I think American films tend to devolve into kind of wish fulfillment and fantasy. It would end up becoming about Mary and Joe, the son, having an affair or something. You know, it would be this kind of or her making an obvious pass at him or something. Yeah, it would. It would just be handled in in a completely, I, I guess you can say, forced and just it just would feel false and mechanical this just felt very real and the same way that like the way that like tom and jerry deal with it like when you know you're around someone and like they come into your house and you do something awkward well you just don't invite them anymore it's like yeah. hey i didn't make the guest list anymore well no kidding shithead well remember there's like i, I think it's in the third moment where leslie manville drops in unexpectedly and yep. he's about to come over with his girlfriend. Now, Leslie Manville doesn't know that. You know, she's just having this another four, crisis. Fourth, this is in the fourth act. Yeah, the, four, the fourth season. What, what happens is Ruth Jean has to kind of whisper to the girlfriend that she's in the other room. And what's great about that is it You see the girlfriend's that, reaction, like her, like, you know, mugging and like, you know, like, oh my God. But like, she's become that person. Somewhere between the two seasons, right. there has been a conversation. They've dealt with it. They know that, oh- Leslie Manville's character had a crush on him. That means the girlfriend, like everybody knows, except that Leslie Manville doesn't know that they know all that and they've said all that history. And that's the way real life works. Yeah. Sets up a very interesting dynamic that this girlfriend in, a, in an American movie, that girlfriend never somehow knows that Leslie Manville likes her soon to be fiance. Right. But in this one, it's very realistic. She does know, but she can be prepared to be really nice to her. Yeah. Because she doesn't feel threatened. She knows that, well, and, and she feels bad for her. She feels bad for everyone feels bad. But it's, it's, Mike Lee was saying that, like, he kind of based the character in some ways. I mean, his collaboration with Leslie Manville. Cause he said, he said, I've known Leslie since she was 23. Wow. That they've been working together. And I mean, which is just insane. The thing that kind of in his mind got him thinking were from when he was growing up in Manchester in the 50s, he said, you know, there were always these like aunts or kind of widows or spinsters, these kind of women who were kind of on the periphery, you know, and I, it's very funny that he says that because she strikes me. She reminds me of a lot of kind of older boomers kind of like hanging on to their youth and trying to like, you know, uh, be young. And like, you know, that's where I kind of think that like, if this were a Hollywood movie, there'd almost be this kind of sense of like fantasy and wish fulfillment. She would end up with the young guy or something. Or, or she'd have to get somebody. She'd have to get somebody at the end instead of, you know, at the end, it's her and the sad sack brother sitting outside oh. in the greenhouse smoking, which is just so freaking glum. And there's this disturbing moment where she's like, she says this one line, and you want to talk about not getting a signal. She's like, <laughs> <laughs> she says, do you want to cuddle? That was really creepy. And I'm just like, what the hell? <laughs> well, she wants to be loved so much that she'll even want to like, I want to comfort this guy. I want to hug the Crypt Keeper. Well, but yet here's the thing is, I think in one of the episodes, they thought that... And this is where I think people look at Tom and Jerry as not necessarily nice people because they look at her as a certain class and their friend Ken. Right. They th I think they were like, well, these two would make a good pair, but she hates that guy, Ken. Now, here's a fascinating thing about this Ken guy. Yes. Right. The actor is named Peter, Peter White. And I didn't really know him that much, but he shows up way back mean in that time. movie. Meantime, he plays the estate manager yep, yep. and he's like a handsome guy, really young. And it's like weird to go back in time. He's the dreamboat where you see the sister is like drooling all over him in the place. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, now that movie, Meantime, this is my, my problem with Mike Lee a little bit. Before we move to Meantime, just one second. Can I just tell you one thing that I just on, that I think is amazing in terms of another uh, year that I thought was incredible. I, sure, I saw yeah. an interview with Mike Lee and do you know, he said that, um, do you know how the, do you know who the first character who he created and started with? In that? In, in another year. Who was the first character? <sighs> the, the brother. Yes. And I think that's insane. Well, okay. So let's face it. This is where the tension is so great. They leave chapter three on a kind of dire note about Leslie Manville's character. So if you're like me, when 
chapter four starts, you're thinking the worst yeah. <laughs> potential situation because they don't reveal what's going on for a little bit. And then it turns into something completely different again. I, I don't know if you're, if you're grabbing where I'm going with that. Well, do you want to explore a little bit? Go ahead. Yeah. Well, I don't want to give away. I mean, people watch right, it. But right, like, right, right. I thought that maybe what was happening when they're attending a, a funeral. No, that it was going to be yes, yes, yes. I, I thought. Yep, 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 oh yeah, my god, you, that's you, really you. sad. Yep, now they're going to have to grasp and grapple. But instead, it goes into a way different direction. You're absolutely right, and that's where and that's where Mike Lee, where I really think he he very deliberately is tr- trying not to fall into the kind of cliches of storytelling and that it's rooted in this kind of reality. And and yet at the same time, you know, it just feels so different from a Hollywood movie because basically his movies, I think if you were to kind of title them, it could be like angry, loudish, young, antisocial prick or middle-aged frumps. But see, I also feel that now having seen all these, I, I am a little surprised. A few times he falls into some traps. Yes, it becomes a little twee and a little cute. And that's where it's very dark and kind of depressing all or nothing, which mm-hmm. I watch after another year. I really didn't like very much. Now that has Manville, that has Sheen, that has Timothy Spall. It has a young Sally Hawkins and it even has James Corden. Like this is Mike Lee's uh, Muriel's Wedding, where it's like the most depressing Australian comedy ever. Right. Um, which, of course, Australian comedy is is, is a synonymous for depressing movies. Yeah, it's a little dark. And so, you know, he really lays on the, oh, the British middle class is, or Brit- British lower class is so pitiful. And these people, they don't have good lives and they are in ruts that they can't get out of. And it's like, it felt like All or Nothing was an updated version of Meantime. Because it kind of took place in almost the same sort of tenement. Right, because I I haven't seen All or Nothing, but I I have seen Meantime, and um, so what's your your take on Meantime? Because I did uh, that I've seen that that was one of the last. That's the last one I watched because you had seen it. And what is fascinating again is that you get to see a young twenty two year old Tim Roth, yeah, and he plays this sort of very slow uh, brother in a yes. family of just awful people in this kind of dysfunctional family all like they're all on the dole the mom the mom spends all day at bingo the dad spends all day at the pub the older brother Phil Daniels. Yeah, uh, who played Jimmy in Quadrophenia. Exactly. And also- and he's got that mustache <laughs> and stuff. He's trying to be older. And stuff. Oh, I love that character. He's so awesome. I know. He's terrible. You know, Muppet. <laughs> yeah, Muppet. I'm not a Muppet. Like, they do play this great role of brothers, but I didn't feel like there's a strong plot going on. And then towards the end, which was interesting when the aunt- Aunt Barbara, who, yeah. by the way, for those who watch The Crown, Aunt Barbara, uh, she plays the queen mother in The Crown. And uh, and Pam Ferris, the mom, always played these weird characters. Like, I always remember playing this awful, like, schoolmaster trunchbull in Matilda. Oh, yeah, that's right. That's right. And then, of course, you got Alfred Molina in there, but... Uh, in a small part, and, and Gary Oldman also. Yeah, Gary Oldman, that guy, I understand why people are attracted to his personality, but and why he got all these roles, but he really talk about hammy. This guy, he was so over the top hammy. Um you bought him as one of those obnoxious. He is the least threatening skinhead. You know, he's really good at bullying like quiet teenage girls. Well, there was that scene that I thought was really good in the elevator when the guy goes up with the carriage. That's right. The, the West Indian guy going up. Uh... But here's the thing. This is – and this is my uh, – a gripe and a picadillo and I had to look it up and now I understand why. One of the things that really bother me about a lot of Mike Lee movies is I hate the music, the score in these films. They are awful and they're all by the same uh, guy. A lot of harp. And it's the same composer, Andrew Dickinson. He did Meantime. He did High Hopes, Naked, yes. Secrets Naked. and Lies, All or Nothing, and Vera Drake. And the movie Meantime, every time there's a dramatic beat, sure enough, that music comes up. The harp music comes in, yeah. And also in High Hopes, oh my God, this uh, harmonica thing, it just comes in and it's just overbearing and not subtle. And I think that Mike Lee cleaned that up over the years. Uh, But even in Career Girls, one of his actresses from Secrets and Lies, uh, who was so great, Jean-Marie Baptiste, she and somebody else does the score for Career Girls. And that's annoying as well. (laughs) 
the score was the best in Naked. I think that's where it was yes, most effective. Naked is really good. Um, so it doesn't annoy me all the time. And I have to be, be fair. I saw Naked when it was in the theaters. Me too. Uh, and I haven't seen it since. But I do recognize that that was great. It was the first time I saw a Mike Lee movie and said, whoa, this guy, uh, the performances he's getting out of actors is incredible. And I had seen Life is Sweet in the theater. Yeah, yeah. We, I, we that was at the Angelica. <laughs> yeah, I saw this uh, the year before we lived together. I saw it with uh, Fifi Kennedy, as you got to mention. This was a girl that we knew and I hang out with a lot. And she was a friend of Teal's. But that's a, those are other stories. But uh, yeah, so I'd seen a couple of his films and then I saw Secrets and Lies. And that's what really made me a Mike Lee fan. Right. And I don't know if I revisited Secrets and Lies now. I've seen it a couple of times. But after seeing a whole bunch of his films. I watched it again because I hadn't really seen it since the theater. Because I found it just very, like, gut-wrenching. Naked, it, I've, oh na- my God, naked, I've seen, naked, I've seen lots and lots and lots of times. So I'm almost kind of dulled to a lot of the violence towards women in it, which is, you know, it was really Yeah, that's, I think, what keeps me from wanting to watch again. Because it starts off with a rape. And that's makes it a challenge to kind of go with the lead actor. Right. And that's what's the strength of that performance is you do. But by the end of the movie, the guy is like totally like destroyed as a human being. So Yes. And, and the, the thing is, I, I think you see a lot of similarities in Naked that you see in a lot of his movies in general that you see in Secrets and Lies. There's a lot of times you really are kind of contrasting characters from different classes. I mean, you know, that's the one thing we talk about how where Mike Lee is not being kind of forced and mechanical, but that's one thing that he constantly is is kind of showing is the difference between the people at the top and the people at the bottom. And you see awful behavior from the people on the bottom, kind of loudish, obnoxious behavior, but he really then kind of will cancel it out by you just sort of see these vampires who, you know. <laughs> but I feel like he's successful in some films more than others. And like, that's why I didn't like about High Hopes is I felt that it was a mishmash of like maybe too broad a comedy. I don't think he does comedy very well. I think it's good when it's like natural funny, but him trying to make jokes and laughs, which I, I feel like he did try with High Hopes, didn't work very well. The thing that he really, I think, is working through in that period in particular is just Thatcher's destruction of the fabric of, of English society. And of course, if you don't have any familiarity with that period, that why it's why Meantime's kind of a fascinating look. Exactly. But it's very heavy handed. It is and it isn't. You know, there's that one time where, yes, where, Pete, where Peter White comes in and he's talking about like money and, you know, um, and obviously, yes, it's very heavy handed in the sense that, you know, the sister Aunt Barbara like worked in a bank. It feels like there was a mistrust there. Like, I think they thought him coming around and and when they reveal like how long they've been there, that somehow they could get kicked out. You see, that's exactly there's this kind of sense that the state, the welfare state has become adversarial. You know, like when they're signing on at the dole and, yeah. you know, Tim Roth doesn't know what to do and the dad's standing behind him trying to help him. And there's the sense you kind of see the sister, then Aunt Barbara trying to help him. On the one hand, it's like, hey, she's trying to do a solid, but is she's kind of doing it for selfish reasons. She doesn't have a kid, which is a very big thing you see in like a lot of Mike Lee films. The difference between families that have kids and people who don't. But that's what I was surprising. It was like, oh, one of the things I thought was so great about Secrets and Lies, but now I'm like, well, but he was actually reborrowing that a little bit. In meantime, was this yes. whole idea. And that was another thing I felt that was a little weak is that the Barbara character becomes very interesting. Yes. But her motivations, I feel like there's a whole bunch of the plot that gets cut out there. You don't really, you're starting to build something where she's, obviously she has money and Obviously, her sister went a different path, and she could have gone that path, but she married into money. But it didn't. She married. She, she, she went. Wasn't she went to happier. a secretarial course, and she was right. able to get a job in the bank, and therefore she was able to get out of uh, the housing estate, and you know, and and that kind of dead end. And she married, you know, her husband Alfred Molina, who was you know sort of a high flyer, and she has this beautiful house out in the burbs, but no kids. And yeah, but they don't really make it clear that she was that unhappy until suddenly she's known she's not happy. I don't feel like they spent a lot of time with her character until suddenly they spent a lot of time with her character. And at that point, you didn't really, you, you weren't cutting back to her and Alfred Molina throughout the movie. Right. Do you know what I mean? Right, 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 right. And so suddenly you find out she's unhappy, but I don't feel like it was, it was earned because you didn't know until that scene when, uh, I keep calling him Jimmy because of 
Phil Daniels shows up at the house and he's such a dick. And why didn't she kick him out? See, that scene actually, I thought, put in a, a lot of the work is that like why she puts up with it for a while. Do you know what I mean? Is the yeah, fact but why that, like, though? See, I kept on thinking that it didn't work because she didn't say what she was that she was trying to give the younger brother a break away from the brother. Yep. So she should have said, you got to you got to scram. And I thought for a while it was interesting is she clearly knew why the kid showed up. And she calls him on that, but she didn't let him leave. I know, but I think it's actually like this kind of sense of like manners that she wasn't like, you know. Well, that might be a British thing, whereas an American thing would be like, out you go. Get the, get out. <laughs> yeah. And then of course, Tim Roth, right? So if anything, what, what do you learn about Tim Roth? All he knows how to do is follow because at the end he gets his hair cut. You see, that's where like if Cinema Village were around, I, I it would be very interesting to have American History X and Meantime play as like a double feature. <laughs> but it has a very different tone. Like at the end, it's like, oh my God, he's a skinhead. And you see like the the kind of racial ideology that's associated, the racist ideology that's associated with it because of the scene with Gary Oldman in the elevator right. with the guy. And yet at the same time, it's it's really, you know, derived from you can kind of see weakness you know, and the sense of like hopelessness. And there's this one moment that you probably thought was heavy handed, but I thought was where you, they're going by, Tim Roth is walking by this kind of abandoned factory and Gary Oldman is inside this kind of um, iron smelter and he's like rolling around and just banging. And I thought, you know, it's one of these things that it kind of made a pretty strong statement about, again, kind of Britain's industrial collapse, you know, under Thatcher. And, you know, well, it shows you like people had jobs that they were happy to have and they don't have them anymore. And now Thatcher doesn't want them to be on the dole and that nobody can get a job. And there is a lot of that going on. I mean, I, I didn't really like Meantime that much, but I found it fascinating. And there's a lot of facets, especially these characters. And plus getting to see Tim Roth and Gary Oldman before they were anybody. I, I never truly find Tim Roth like very sympathetic or affecting. I found him like very sympathetic, just his whole like demeanor and everything. But he was also very sympathetic in the hit. Yes. Yeah, but 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 he's also again he's a killer, you know. But it's, it's yeah, just, well, it's but you know, but he's like again. He, he, so, anyways, we've talked about Mike Lee for a bit. I'm, I'm thinking that uh, if people don't feel they've already heard all of what another year is, they should check it out. And and also, I got to say on on Amazon, you should check out Peter Lou. I actually think it's really quite good. So far, the the half hour I've watched, uh, I'm really interested. I think without giving too much away, I think it's very timely. With things that are going on in America. Yes. And, and and can I also say what's, you know, hilarious to me is that you have this film about the mistreatment of workers and it's produced by Amazon. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know. What are you going to do? So, okay. So we only have a couple minutes left. My question is, do you want to talk uh, about Terminator Dark Fate? <laughs> okay. So you, you, you started talking about like why you thought Terminator Dark Fate was, you said the beginning was okay. And I edited it out a little bit because I didn't know, I, I was like, wow, we hadn't seen it. So maybe we'll talk about it. So, cause I got to tell you, I saw, I saw it last night. Okay. But here's, I'll be totally honest with you. I fell asleep with 15 minutes left. Oh, well, you know what? This is one of those movies where at the end, it's getting just so loud and obnoxious that you really lose the thread of what's happening and you just don't care. Um, my okay. big things about it, other than this not really worth talking, is that this is one of those movies where they feel like they've got to give the characters something snazzy to say right. and one-liners. It became a thing where I'm loudly making jokes about the person who's going to be kind of like the next Sarah Connor there that they have to yes, save, yes. that she keeps making these super important speeches and it's just ridiculous. And yet, especially <laughs> the trauma that she's supposed to have, having her brother, her brother and, her and her father killed, killed and all this stuff. That's right. She didn't get to eat her lunch. You know. Yeah. And she's showing more emotion for uh, the person there, uh, Mackenzie Davis, that, uh, uh, that, Grace. that's saving her. Linda Hamilton, you know, I mean, they, they dug her out of a bar somewhere in New Orleans. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not kidding. She lives in New Orleans. You know why she lives there? Because she can still smoke in the bars. I, um, okay. That's, that's, I read that review. And she. what I do like about her is this person's face has never been touched by a plastic surgeon. She wears every wrinkle formed from those camel lights. She really, she's got a soaked in look and that voice is so gravelly. Yes. And and she also, her, her, her character realizes they want to give me money to do this. Fine. They want me to say this. Great. I'll say whatever you want. It's yeah. ridiculous. Sure. And it's designed, I guess, when, when certain lines are designed to try to get 
an audience reaction. Yeah. That's when you're going in the wrong direction. You know, I actually, I, I hear what you're saying. And I, I got to say, though, part of the fun <laughs> is her, her performance is really pretty campy. It's the <laughs> only part that I like in the movie because it's the only one who seems to get it that this movie's crap and it's fine. Uh, Schwarzenegger, he's looking old. That guy is looking old. He's moving like a guy. You mean Carl? Football. <laughs> you mean yeah. Carl the Terminator? <laughs> but did you see how like his like his hips are are shot and he just has that old man look now? Yeah, no, even I though know. he's Mar- Arnold Schwarzenegger, but um, no, if you so, have a pig heart, it just you know it starts old. to. Uh, <laughs> so here's the thing that really bothered me: the CGI most of the time is super sloppy. There's a scene where this uh, new Terminator guy transforms back into himself it's almost like stop motion where oh there he is in one scene he's a a skeleton and then in three more stops he's a human it is really bad like it's some of the worst cgi i've ever seen and then these battle scenes where there's a fight and someone gets like thrown over across a room in a very strange cgi manner right it doesn't look real like it's not realistic movement even for humans Right. And it bothers me. It just, the whole movie looks dumbed down and sloppy. And even though it cost a big bag of money, they still skimped and saved on CGI because they're probably like, yeah, you know what? It's really not that worth it. You know what? I'm going I'm to take a look at it again. But I mean, basically, I, I thought the movie was like anodyne. It was just harmless. It was, you know, fine. I was watching it with uh, my son and he was into it. And, you know, remember, it's it's a Terminator movie. I, you know? No, yeah, that's not a good excuse. Yeah, I know. I, well, I'm Many people, you. I don't think so, but many people think that Terminator 2 is one of the great action sequels. I disagree. It's got, it's got, it's got, it's got some great action sequences. But I will it. tell you, I think that the special effects are better in that movie. Yeah, the special effects are good in that. Yeah, and this movie just made no sense. This like secondary to, you know, at some point, there's no suspense because every five seconds the guy can find them. And, and and that's that's the thing that's kind of interesting is that I I almost blame J.J. Abrams for this the whole like <laughs> you know like hey we can start like we I think he has a lot that he like. He has to answer for because you have that. You have You're the Marvel. Have to answer for Terminator. <laughs> he's got Abrams. Answer, he's got to answer. I think also from the whole idea that once you start getting into time, kind of uh, wrinkles and stuff, it's just um, you know you can just there. There are no rules. You can just make it up, and you know nothing is fixed. Nothing is true, and you know so that's I, I think um, that's one of the things. But uh, but at the same time, I was willing to kind of hate the movie for that. But I just kind of I, I was ready to just be like. Hey, you know what? It's fine. I'm watching it. My kids watching it. It's okay. And I know that's a pretty that's a pretty low bar. It, it's very very low, Bill. I'm <laughs> disappointed in you. Okay, so now I'm not even going to talk about this film anymore because clearly you didn't understand the the depths of awful of this what? movie. What? It's terrible. Go watch the last 15 minutes. It's terrible. okay. All right. Maybe that'll seal the deal. So, so you anyways, have to be you have to be stupid to uh, you know give it okay. Okay. When we talk about lowest common denominator movie, I don't even think someone who I don't value as a person could like that. Film. <laughs> I just don't. All right. And if somebody out there watches it and has a real reason why they think it is, well, you better you better contact me at feedback and stuff seen.com and tell me that you need to be on the show so we can talk about it. All right. Anyways, uh, thanks for tuning in. And uh, we should be bringing you more episodes uh, in the coming weeks. Talk to you soon and try to go watch something at home. Watch something. I don't know if you've got anything you're going to try to watch in the near future. Anything? I'm going to watch Terminator 2 Dark Feet again. No, Dark Feet. I love it. Uh, Okay. So go move that car before you get a ticket. Absolutely, Jimmy. Okay. Thank you. All right. Bye. Bye.